Um, thank you for inviting me, uh, Benjamin and Pamela. Pamela's his wife up there, and she's been out there um, calligraphing the, uh, is that the right word, or signing the books? Um, it's, a bit, it's a quite a long story, this, so I'll, uh, I'll try and condense years and years into about 10 minutes uh, for you. Um, first of all, let me say, Benjamin rang me maybe a week or two ago and said, would you speak at the book launch? And I said, I'd love to. And he brought a copy of the book and I've read the book and the first thing I'll say is that you're going to love it and I can highly recommend it. So that's the first thing. It's, it's a great read and I think it really adds to the, the Walsing Matilda story. Um, you, um, you know, these books come out every 10 or 20 years or five years and he's just done an absolutely wonderful job. The research is meticulous and the love and detail that's gone into the work is just fantastic. So I think we can start, can we have a round of applause? I think we can start there. Um, how I got involved in the story was um, in a similar way about 10 or 12 years ago, my brother-in-law, Dennis O'Keefe, who was a regular performer here at, at the festival and a Warnable resident, uh, got very interested in the Walsing Matilda story and published a book called Walsing Matilda, The Secret Story of Australia's Favourite Song. And he, as a, a brother-in-law, he asked me, look, would you help me do a sort of a performance of his research? And I said, yeah, sure. And at, to that stage, I'd written lyrics and music, music for a film, music for shows, but never actually written a script. And I thought, oh, well, I'll have a go. And the first words were, g'day, I'm Dennis O'Keefe, and I want to tell you about my research in Walsing Matilda. And so the story was to, the idea was to tell Dennis's story and then have historical scenes from the story played while he told the story. So I did a draft of that. And about three months later, I rang him up and said, Dennis, I think we need... Um, a bottle of wine. And um, he said, yeah, okay. And I said, look, I think this is a play. And I think I want to write it. And he said, carry on. <laughs> and so there we were. We had Dennis in the play and we were trying to write it. And then I rang him up and down for three months later. And I said, Dennis, I think we need another bottle of wine. <laughs> It is a play, but you're not in it anymore. <laughs> so what I did was, in the, in the play, I replaced Dennis with the swagman. So the swagman sort of becomes the ghost that tells the story, and with the benefit of hindsight. And so um, I became very attached to Dennis's um, research and his work and his, and his vision and I accepted it and we wrote a play and we performed it 65 times. One of, perhaps one of the interesting things about the play is like, it's because I didn't think of the concept myself and from the start there was never an ending 
to the story and I've experimented with many, many different endings. You know, I mean, um, and Nikki, for instance, down here has probably seen 10 of the 65 performances and she probably saw a slightly different ending every time because every time we do the show, my wife would sit up the back and go, no, nah, you ain't got it. So I'd rewrite it and, nah, you ain't got it. <laughs> rewrite it and rewrite it. So, and in a sense, the, the, part of the problem for that was that the story didn't quite have an end in a story because Banjo and Christina never really got together or if they do, we don't know. We don't know what happened. Um, anyway, so we were performing this and, of course, as you'll read in the book, um, we were doing a, a reading at that stage of, on the day that Dennis passed away, which was five years ago. Today's the 9th or the 10th? Yesterday. It was five years ago yesterday. So we're doing a reading on that day and it was a fairly difficult to do a reading on the day that your brother-in-law dies and at the end of the show at that stage we had his voice singing the song and so that was just like absolutely heartbreaking. But anyway, as you read in the book, Benjamin came up and said, I'm really interested in this story, I'm a barrister and I'm just really interested in this story and I said, well, here's, you know, there's a copy of the book and good luck, we'll, keep, we'll catch up and we'll have a few bottles of wine. <laughs> Um, and then about three months later, he comes to another show. He turns up. He says, "And uh, can, can you step into the bar here, I go, the the drinking bar?" And he's got this stack of stuff here. And he says, "Did you know that they um they cut the swagman's head off?" I said, "No, I didn't know that." He said, "Now it's a fairly big part of the story, I, I would think." And I said, "Yeah, it is." So that was the first um, inkling I had that um, the research that. Um, Benjamin was going to find was going to be significant research. So um, I've got, if you don't mind, and the shape of notes has changed these days. Um, but um, so uh, one of the things that uh, Benjamin also says is that he's a barrister. He's a, you know, and, he, he, and you read in his book, he's, he's saying, I'm a barrister, I'm not a historian. And I would contest that. And I would think that this is indeed a work of history. Like, it really does have, have some great research. The, there are some just some gems in this story. And are, are there any family members of the McPhersons and Rileys here at all? No. Unfortunately, because I think they're going to love this book. They, 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 re, they really are. They're, the family members are going, okay, this is great. And... There, I'm sure there'll be things in this book that they didn't know. Um, there's some fantastic... In my play, uh, Sarah Riley is sort of... She's the fiancé of Banjo and, you know, then, and then Banjo writes the song and has some... We don't know exactly... It's not spelled out in the play. Some kind of affair with Christina. And uh, Sarah does the, the huge dummy speech three-quarters of the way through the show and there's a great big scene... So the, the play is a little, you, you get the feeling the play is a little bit unkind to Sarah. Well, the book is really kind to Sarah. You know, there's some great work about her, her needlework, um, you know, her gifts as a person. So it, it's, a, it's a really well-balanced book in, in that sense. Now, one of the things, of course, it does, uh, as all uh, historians and researchers uh, sh should do, is they should go through the existing evidence. So he goes through Sydney May from... 1944 
It goes through Richard McGoffin. Um, I think Richard McGoffin's main work this, of interest to this story is A Waltz with Matilda from 1973. Yep. Um, it goes through, you know, the various wars of people that said Banjo and Patterson never wrote it. Then he goes on to, Den on to Dennis's research. And Dennis's research is very different to, um, very different to Benjamin's. But the, so he tackles the really, the big issues of the story. And one of the big issues of the story is, of course, when exactly the song was written. And I think Benjamin has certainly, to my mind, proved conclusively that it was written in August 1895. Whereas the previous research probably thought it was written earlier in the year and, you know, there were enormous political discussions about when that was written. When I was in Winton, I read a, a, a history that sort of says, well, yeah, well, the historians were trying to say it's written in January 1895 to emphasise the importance of the closeness of the writing of the song to the political events. So, you know, it's part of the uh, culture wars um, and he's gone right through all... The, you know, through those things and, re and researched them amazingly well. Um, but he says he's not a, a historian, but he is, because there's a narrative. He, um, as with great historians and good historians, he has a perspective. He, he weighs material, some materials more important to him. You know, so he becomes... You know, there's a lot of research here, and there's, he'd certainly he'd certainly be a good barrister. <laughs> I think I think it might get you a few gigs. Uh, um, so the research is amazing, but he has a point of view, and he he uses the information that he's got and the research he's got to to present a point of view. And ultimately, in twenty or thirty years' time, you know, someone will come along and say, "Well, you know, that point of view is." Now contested by these new by this new information, so it's a it's a complete it's a complete package. Um, before I get to the final point that I'll and, and look there, as I said, there's some beautiful gems in it, and one of them is the um, the research done into is it Henry Henry Lamond? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beautiful story about how this boy remembers maybe meeting Banjo Patterson and the reactions of, of his father. And it's just, there's not enough evidence there to, I, I would think, to build a case about something, but it's a fascinating little snippet of, and you know, with this, there's this huge story, like a, a huge ocean, and you've just got this little vial of information that might give you some clue as to what the story was about. And this little bit of the story and Banjo's lisp is just beautifully told. So um, it's a gem that I, I think you should read. And finally, I'd like to say, I think the possibly, you know, it's, maybe it's a hard thing to say, or it's a far-fetched thing to say at this point of view, but I think this, um, this book has an important legacy in that it's open-ended. And there is a website, and the website encourages um, people who know something about this story to contribute to it. And, I'm, and Benjamin and I have talked about this, and we've both 
believed, or perhaps perhaps Benjamin has believed, but I certainly have, that somewhere in somebody's sewing basket, in someone's dresser, in someone's back shed, there's a collection of letters, there's a biography, you know, an autobiography that's going to spill the whole story. And we believe that this is going to happen. And with this, with this new website, and the address is? www.walsingmatildahistory.com.au Easy to remember, but you'll remember it even better if you buy the book. It's on the third last page. So there's this invitation for people that... And, you know, that's one of the bewildering things about the story is that you talk to someone... Uh, and it means this. You talk to someone and it means that. Um, someone has an, a memory of something. Um, so this website will give an opportunity for people to put in their memories and, you know, that will probably be become part of the story. And it, one day you might curse it and say, well, God, I've got to rewrite the book, you know. He'll certainly, I imagine, it will give plenty of material um, for a second edition, and so uh, hopefully some of you might might contribute. I'd like to um, add one personal thing uh, to this story. The the debate in the um, at the school I'm currently working at, um, they're asking me to can I write the school song? They don't like the existing song, and I said, well, school songs. And in a sense, I suppose this is true. National anthems and school songs, they happen by accident. It's like football team songs, you know. It's very rare that somebody says, right, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to get my piano, I'm going to tell I'm going to write this song. I think in the case of the Richmond Football Club song, you know, it was clearly written by someone, but most of the other songs are sort of borrowed tunes and they've kind of evolved and they kind of just happen by accident. And in a sense, Benjamin's been saying this is how this song Evolved, but anyway, I was talking to the, the the people at the school, and I was saying, "Well, you know, it's the interesting thing about Walsing Matilda is, is that although I would hate it to be a, a national anthem, because as you've seen from here, the the variety that Walsing Matilda engenders is is magnificent. Like there is such a variety. It can be such a tender tune, it can be a marching tune, it can be a funny tune, it can bring up all sorts of words and brought. It brought great words from Banjo Patterson. But um, so I think it would be a shame if it actually became the national anthem. But I think my, own, my feeling is that it's worthy of a national anthem. And at the very least we can say that the writing of the, of, of the poem and the song and the events that surrounded it were coincidental with the Shearer's deciding that they were going to put down their arms and they were going to negotiate and they were going to talk. So that essentially led to the two sides of politics and to our constitution and to our parliament. So I think the song is coincidental with the Commonwealth of Australia. So in that sense, I think um, it is very definitely a national song and I'm sure we all agree it's a great, great national song. So um, I highly recommend this book. And I look forward to um, someone, some of you coming up in the street and saying, yeah, I enjoyed it or um, I disagree with what you said about this or that. Or, yeah, I, I look forward to the uh, 
uh, conversation and I congratulate you, um, Benjamin, on this great book. Well, thanks very much, Felix. Uh, Benjamin Linder's my name, of course. I'd like to deal with two formalities before we get on to some more uh, detailed stuff. And the first is that I'd like to acknowledge the Pikarong and Gunditjmara tribes and the first peoples of this region and uh, pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The second uh, formality, which I uh, look forward to, and I don't want to forget any names, so I want to deal with it right at the beginning. And that's just a couple of thanks, first and foremost, to Felix Maher for his marvellous and very kind introduction. Uh, of course, to Joe and Dean, who have provided this absolutely magical environment in which to launch this book. This is the inaugural book launch of this book. It was published and printed on Valentine's Day, 14th of February this year, uh, which I think is a lovely day to have a book published um, uh, by Boolarong Press. And uh, that's the other thank you to Dan Kelly, who's not here today because he's working hard in Brisbane where his uh, business is. It's a boutique and marvellous publishing house which uh, publishes only majority published books on Queensland history, culture, personalities and biographies. So this book fits perfectly within that genre. And uh, so I want to thank him. And also another person that's absent here uh, is a fellow called Bruce Watson, who has played at Port Ferry on many occasions and uh, is a singer-songwriter from Melbourne, where I come from, a very good friend, and he's the author of the uh, video that you saw uh, welcoming you into uh, this environment. So uh, thanks to Bruce as well. Now, the uh, formalities concluded. <coughs> I'm going to tell you a little bit about where we're headed on this inaugural launch of um, Walsing Matilda, Australia's Accidental Anthem, A Forensic History. Uh, the, you'll all have seen on your seats, or most of you will have seen, uh, some words and music <coughs> of the original uh, Macpherson-Patterson version of Walsing Matilda. They're the words that... Banjo Patterson first penned when he wrote the tune, uh, or sorry, wrote the words in uh, August of 1895. And on the other side, you'll see a facsimile of the uh, arrangement that Christina McPherson wrote. Uh, it's a beautiful arrangement, and it's not quite the arrangement that you'll have been familiar with um, yourselves. Uh, but those words, um, can I ask you just to put them to one side at the moment? Uh, this book launch is going to finish... Uh, not with you listening to my voice, by which time you'll be heartily sick of it, but you'll be listening to your own and uh, you'll all be invited for a, an a cappella version of the original version of Walsing Matilda and uh, I'll be inviting Felix to uh, help me kick that off uh, at the end. So that's where we'll finish off. But um, in between then, uh, what I want to do is to start off uh, with something that might be a bit familiar to you all. And that is, I'm going to ask you all to uh, uh, lift your voices and sing the just the first verse. We don't want to go too long. Just the first verse of the familiar version of Walsing Matilda that you'll all know. And so just on the count of three, one, two, three. Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong, 
Under the shade of a colobar tree And he sang as he put and waited While his billy boiled Who come a waltzing Matilda with me Okay, that'll do. Now, um, the first thing I want to point out is that the version that you've sung uh, was not the version that Banjo wrote word for word. Most of it was. But the first uh, swagman was not jolly at all. That was a word that was inserted uh, in 1902 uh, by a person that was the wife of a uh, business that sold Billy Tea. Now, by 1902, Banjo Patterson had decided that uh, this song that he'd written, Waltzing Matilda, uh, wasn't really doing anything for him. He wasn't too excited by it. He didn't think it was a brilliant piece of work. He didn't think it was a, uh, a, a prospective uh, alternative national anthem. So what he did is he sold it with a lot of old other junk, which he described uh, in his words, about a half a dozen other poems, uh, to Angus and Robertson, who on sold that particular tune, Walsing Matilda, to Inglis and Company, a tea, uh, a, a place that sold tea. And they put the song on the outside of the packets of tea that they sold to uh, the Australian population, who at that time were very much influenced by the... Uh, uh, the British tea drinking tradition. And uh, so a lot of people were suddenly reading the words of Walsing Matilda, and but it needed to be souped up. And uh, the two things that changed uh, in 1903 when uh, uh, it was uh, slightly rewritten is that the word jolly came into it uh, and uh, a couple of other words changed as well. Uh, and the whole tune became uh, a rollicking, souped-up version of what was originally a much more uh, uh, sedate, melancholic, uh, and indeed, as I've described in, in the book, uh, it, there is considerable evidence that this, in fact, was a love serenade. Uh, it wasn't a, book, uh, a story about uh, tea or about waltzing or about uh, a swagman, but uh, the intent on writing it was uh, really to um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, express in a musical way uh, Banjo Patterson's uh, fondness for uh, the person who wrote the music, a woman called Christina McPherson. Now, can I just get a show of hands of how many people here um, knew before I've just mentioned the word or the name uh, who had written the... Uh, uh, the music or compose the music. Okay, so there's a, a smattering. She arranged it, correct. I'm corrected already and I'll, I'll uh, concede to that uh, objection. Uh, she, she did arrange it, she didn't compose it. Uh, the original tune, uh, Thou Bonnie uh, of Wood of Craigie Lee, uh, is an old tune that was uh, written in uh, around about 1810 uh, in Scotland, so it's an old Scottish tune uh, which um, Christina McPherson was playing uh, on an auto harp when Banjo Patterson turned around and asked her if she knew the words to it. Uh, she didn't. Um, she was 31 years of age, attractive, educated, intelligent and clearly had some musical abilities 
Uh, Banjo was 31, intelligent, a solicitor from Sydney, had his own law firm in partnership with a fellow called Street, Street and Patterson in Bond Street. Um, clearly educated and uh, uh, he had an eye for um, uh, a, a woman who might uh, attract his uh, attentions and uh, uh, decided that he might be able to write some words and said, look, I think I can write a few words to that. Now, the words that he initially wrote were not uh, quite the words that you've heard, but the, um, uh, the chorus went uh, along these lines, waltzing Matilda, Matilda, my darling, who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me? Waltzing Matilda and leading a water bag, you'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Now, it might th when you look at the original words, they're very much a question and answer form, which is an old traditional Irish Celtic form of writing, writing music. Uh, and indeed, the words themselves are in a question and answer form. And the question that Banjo might have been asking uh, might have been, well, uh, perhaps you might like to uh, do a bit of waltzing Matilda with me and whatever that might have uh, engendered in her mind, uh, well, the metaphor speaks for itself. Uh, this was all happening in uh, outback Queensland at, Dra at Dagworth Station where Christina McPherson's brother, brothers, three brothers, were squatters, uh, well-heeled. This is, we're talking about a quarter of a million acres. We're talking about uh, about 100,000 sheep, I think, on their station at the time. Uh, they were very, very well off and very uh, adventurous uh, squatters. Uh, but the writing of the song was, of course, witnessed by um, Banjo Patterson's uh, fiance that... Uh, Felix mentioned, Sarah Riley, uh, and uh, that witnessing of the writing of the song uh, appears um, <coughs> on, the, uh, on the evidence that we have before us to be um, uh, the death of uh, that particular seven-year engagement. Now, uh, can I ask the rhetorical question, how does a woman become engaged for seven years to a man without him popping the question and what's her state of mind at the end of seven years or even at the end of one year or two years. Now, uh, you can work out the answer to that yourselves. Uh, I haven't quite worked it out, but um, uh, she ha she was very patient uh, at the very least. And at the end of um, the uh, writing of Walsing Matilda, that, appears, that patience appears to have been uh, tested uh, to its extreme. So uh, that was the end of that relationship, it appears. Now, uh, the book basically uh, looks at the um, uh, interactions between all of the parties and the people that were there uh, back in August of 1895 and the circumstances of writing the song. Uh, the subtitle of the book uh, took me to a whole lot of places when I started to ask questions about the book took me to a lot of places and people that I didn't really know a lot about. Uh, and uh, one of them was to um, uh, discover that uh, really the, uh, the, the song that I thought was a pretty familiar and um, uh, constant uh, 
icon of Australian music, folk music, Walsing Matilda, <coughs> was really a song that was written uh, by accident. And uh, that's why one of the um, or one of the reasons I've put that word into the into the subtitle. Uh, it wasn't written uh, for profit. <coughs> it wasn't written by Banjo Patterson to uh, uh, to make a, a lot of money. In fact, he did sell it in 1902 for uh, five pounds, uh, which isn't a lot of money when you think of how many times it's been sung since then. And uh, the estate nor Banjo has received any royalties from that. But even more critical uh, or even more criticism can be levelled at, um, at the banjo because uh, out of that five quid that he uh, got for the song, um, can anyone guess how much uh, Christina McPherson got having written the, the, the music? Or the, uh, we, we have a gentleman here saying zero, there's a woman down the back saying zero and everyone's right of course. Uh, not only did she get written out of history, but she didn't even uh, get a red cent or a red penny for the uh, for the work that she did or the input that she put into it. Um, this, in in that sense, that I think one of the things I wanted to really emphasise in the book and to bring out of the uh, of the relationships of the parties that that ended up um, at Dagworth Station is that this is a collaboration, and a collaboration that. Uh, had a uh, has had a, a huge impact on uh, Australian culture in a, in a long long term sense. Um, when you think of other collaborations, uh, you, you might think of Gilbert and Sullivan. You might think of Simon and Garfunkel. You might think of Sonny and Cher. I mean, these are people that, that have done a lot of work together and spend a lot of time together collaborating and creating all sorts of magnificent plays and comic operas and songs, etc. And they spent years collaborating in each other's company. Well, this collaboration, Walsing Matilda, occurred only a matter of days after the two had met. And I think that in itself uh, is some basis for saying, well, this is just an accidental song that has uh, come onto the Australian landscape, musical landscape. The, um, the notion that it was a love serenade is, is also, uh, uh, it's a bit romantic and one has to uh, uh, profess your biases. Uh, I think uh, that's one thing that Felix and I will agree on, that, uh, that there is that romantic aspect to it. Uh, and um, it might be that this is uh, Australia's answer or Banjo's um, uh, response to Christina's uh, musical talents is Australia's answer to uh, to Shakespeare's Romeo or uh, or even a dashing version of uh, Rostand's Cyrano de Bergerac, which uh, is another sort of love story. Uh, but that's um, they're just sort of international equivalents. There is one thing that does make Walsing Matilda a rather unique song. In, on the world scene, on the world scale of music uh, and collaborations. And, uh, and I'll challenge um, Sonny and Cher and Simon and Garfunkel and all of those people to match this statistic. And that is, <coughs> and that, is that <coughs> in the uh, Australian National uh, um, Film and Sound Archive in Canberra, uh, a, a marvellous institution which carries uh, many, many songs and films from Australian history. It's only 
couple of hundred years of Australian history and a much shorter history of, of film and sound. Uh, but in that collection, there are over 730 versions of Waltzing Matilda. And now no, uh, no other artist, as far as I know, musical or otherwise, uh, can match that. Um, you've seen in the uh, introduction, those who were here earlier, and I'll put it back on at the end, uh, five minutes of um, uh, about ten uh, versions in different genres uh, of Walsing Matilda. You've got jazz, you've got uh, pan flutes, there's all sorts of um, genres that you've seen there. And uh, uh, I think the important thing is that to realise is that you, you're only seeing about 1% of the number of times that it's been interpreted. And of course, uh, some of you might have, uh, have heard um, Tom Waits's fantastic version of um, Tom Traubert's Blues. Uh, it's a blues version of Walsing Matilda. It's just very evocative. And um, uh, so that's just a little example of Australian imperialism, which I really love going to America. You know, now the Americans are copying us, which is uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful to see. Um, now, the way in which uh, I came into this, um, people have asked me, why did you write the book? It's, I've, I haven't written any other books. I've written a few things about drugs and the law and traffic, traffic law and that sort of thing because, uh, as has been said, I'm a criminal barrister. So I've, I've written a few things in that um, respect, but this is my first uh, non-fiction book. Um, why did I came to write it? Well, um, most my usual answer to that is... Well, you'll have to read the introduction and to do that, you'll have to buy the book. And if I tell you, you won't do that. So I'm not going to tell you. I think that's a bit unfair to be saying that to, to uh, you who have generously come to listen to uh, this book launch. As I said, the inaugural book launch. Uh, the reason I started off this quest, as uh, Felix has uh, said in his introduction quite correctly is because uh, he wrote a brilliant play called uh, The Man They Call the Banjo. Uh, it was, uh, I, I just went to a reading of it and there's a wonderful circularity about this event here today because the reading of that particular play was at this very folk festival, Port Ferry Folk Festival, in 2014. And it was on the 8th of March, uh, of the, the second day of the festival, Saturday, <clears throat> which I saw it. Um, after, and I had not done any research on it before that. After the play, I approached uh, Felix and uh, he, as he described, he sold me the book. Uh, I went away and read it. Uh, and uh, what excited me most about the play and indeed the book uh, was that here I was in uh, mature age. I'm not a young fellow, but um, I'd sung the song many times in my youth and as a kid. Uh, and I never knew that um, uh, you could actually put a name to the uh, swagman, uh, the name of um, Samuel Frenchy Hofmeister. Uh, I never knew that you could put a name to the, to the squatter, the name of Bob McPherson. And I didn't know that you could put names to the three uh, policemen, uh, Senior Constable Cafferty, Dyer and... Uh, uh, forgotten the other one but it starts with a d anyway there are three policemen that are, are named in uh, the books by um, 
Mr. McGoffin and Dennis O'Keefe over the years. And I thought this was fascinating and I wanted to know more about it. So I thought it would be a very easy task uh, simply to verify that uh, th those assertions. Uh, that's where I became a bit of a uh, criminal barrister, came out and a bit of a forensic uh, analysis started um, to uh, emerge. And that analysis meant that I went to uh, the, the sources. I went, I got the book and the first thing I did was I went to the footnotes uh, to find out where it was that um, these people's names emerged and how they came into the song. Well, that started me with some questions uh, and uh, those questions ended up uh, having to be answered. And every time I asked a new question, I got a new answer and, and it just created more and more questions to be answered. And that's why the book is sort of 80,000 words with about 10,000 words of footnotes. Uh, it, it wasn't work, it was a lot of fun, uh, but it meant I had to go uh, searching libraries, the National Library of Australia, uh, the uh, New South Wales Mitchell Library, there's a fabulous library in uh, Geelong, uh, State Library of Victoria, uh, and uh, www.trove.com.au, uh, which if you don't know that website, it's the site that has digitised every newspaper in Australia since um, uh, the year dot, since we started. And it is a brilliant free source of information. Uh, and I credit that, um, that website with a lot of my research. And a lot of my research was fairly straightforward. Um, you didn't need to be a genius to work out uh, how to search these various, uh, the lives and of these various people that were involved in the book. Uh, a lot of my research was all about births, deaths and marriages, believe it or not. And uh, these people that were involved in the story of Walsy Matilda uh, were all pretty well off and they very kindly for posterity uh, always uh, entered into the, the Argus newspaper in Melbourne or the Sydney Morning Herald or the Queensland Courier. They entered the names and dates of birth and places of birth of their children. Christina McPherson was one of 14 children. Uh, I apologise, start again. Christina McPherson was one of 11 children. Sarah Riley was one of 14 children. And Banjo Patterson was the eldest of seven. Uh, he had one brother and five sisters uh, and it was really his um, responsibility as the eldest male in the family and the eldest child in the family uh, after his parents, both parents passed away in 1893 to um, uh, look after his five sisters and, uh, and his brother. Uh, and that informs part of the story of what happened in 1895. Uh, they're just little bits and pieces of information that I uh, accumulated along the way when I was asking questions about how did this song get written and why did it get written by these uh, and, and how was the words uh, mixed with the music in 1895. Uh, so in order to work out how the names uh, of the various participants were uh, were located and found. Um, I did started my research and I found a whole lot of other things which were uh, s sort of peripheral uh, as I as I made um, uh, made various discoveries along the way. <coughs> um, 
Can I ask this as a rhetorical question? What's the secret of of the song's endurance? It's been going for 120 years or thereabouts. Uh, it's um, uh, It seems to have been continuously uh, re-recorded in various genres and by different people. Uh, and uh, just why why was the song written in the first place is one of the uh, one of the questions that people ask. <clears throat> uh, at this stage, I'm going to see if I can answer one of that question with just a um, a couple of a reading from a couple of pages of the book, uh, and uh, after that, uh, we might have some questions and Q and A. So let me just take you to. Um, uh, couple of pages of the book. <clears throat> um, just by the way, it's got um, it's got about a hundred pictures in it. So if you get sick of reading it, you can always just look at the pictures. They're, they're, some of them are fabulous. <clears throat> Well, Ban uh, this is just um, one little excerpt, and I'll combine it with a second. Uh, Banjo had a son. In fact, <clears throat> he married in 1903. He had two children, uh, a daughter and a son. His son was called Hugh. He was born in 1903. <clears throat> well, Banjo himself was born in 1864. Uh, so he was quite a mature man when he married, about 39 years of age, and... Uh, even older when he had Hugh. Uh, in um, 19, uh, Banjo was born on the 17th of February 1864 and for the 100th, <coughs> excuse me, 100th anniversary of his birth, the ABC radio uh, did a, um, uh, a little uh, memorial to him and invited a few people to speak. Uh, and just reading from uh, the book, Banjo's son Hugh described Banjo's method of writing in an ABC radio documentary broadcast to mark the 100th anniversary of Patterson's birth, 17th of February 1964. Hugh had observed his father's writing routine at least from the time he returned from the First World War until his death some 22 years later. He died in 1941. He said on the 100th anniversary birthday broadcast, and I quote from Hugh Patterson, Quote, he enjoyed writing very much and he'd get an idea to write a thing and then he'd write it off quickly and a lot of it was for his own amusement. <clears throat> and then I've, um, I've concluded this. After all the theories, so the theories I'm talking about are the the history wars as to whether Walsy Matilda is really about the squatters' uh, fights with the <coughs> with the shearers back in the middle of eighteen ninety four when there were shearers' strikes and the burning of uh, eight uh, uh, shearing sheds in eight weeks, uh, the closest Australia's got to civil war. It said, uh, or whether it was just a little ditty that was put together. Uh, for the amusement of uh, uh, of those around them, 
After all the theories and analysis of the origins of Walsing Matilda, including the debate as to whether it was a simple ditty, a love serenade, or a political allegory, there may have been yet another motive for Patterson to put his pen to paper in the dusty never-never, uh, in, the, in the company of squatters, well-educated and talented women, sheep overseers, and over a 100,000 sheep. Indeed, to any other reason, perhaps he wrote it, uh, in addition to any other reason, perhaps he wrote it uh, after a hearty meal, uh, probably lamb chops, uh, just for his own amusement. Its imagery and turn of phrase continues to amuse, to delight, and to be engineered into languages other than English, literally into hundreds of other genres and styles. Now, the reason I, I mentioned that is because uh, uh, here is a song for all seasons. Uh, and why is, it, why is there uh, such an, an enduring quality about it? Uh, well, I've got this, uh, this opinion or this theory that it's word, the words within the song itself <coughs> Excuse me. Um, mark, <coughs> mark the connection between uh, what we might describe as whitefella history, the last 200 odd years, <coughs> and the Aboriginal language of the area. Uh, words like jumbuck, like billabong, and uh, coolabar. Uh, there's also a European connection to the origins of the terms waltzing Matilda, uh, which terms come from the German words going auf der Walz. Uh, meaning to learn an apprenticeship and walking uh, between villages to learn from craftsman to craftsman. Uh, and it also nods to the divide between the underclass, the swaggies, the swagmen and, or the, uh, um, those who <coughs> were described uh, as um, uh, sundowners. They would turn up at the end of the day at, your, uh, uh, at the uh, uh, sheep station and uh, ask if there was uh, any work um, left for the day. And if there wasn't, well, um, do you mind uh, perhaps a feed or two? And uh, that was a common experience in, uh, uh, in outback Queensland. So it also nods to the divide between the, that underclass, the swaggies, and the landowners, the squatters. Its characters, uh, the three main characters uh, that I've mentioned, Banjo Patterson, uh, Sarah Riley, and uh, Christina McPherson, uh, link all three of the eastern colonies or states. Uh, Patterson was from New South Wales, uh, and uh, the girls were from, both of them were from Victoria, and of course, this is a song that was written in Queensland. So all three of the of the eastern states are linked through the song. It's a song for all seasons. It's an unofficial anthem, uh, and for there, in my just my humble opinion, for there to be over seven hundred and thirty versions, uh, the the only answer that I can come up with as to why that's the case is that there's a touch of magic in the song. Uh, in my book, I try to find what that magic is. Uh, I don't know that I succeed in it, uh, but it does give due acknowledgement to the women of Walsing Matilda. It does dispel, I think, some of the myths which have gained traction over the last 40 years. One of them uh, that Felix referred to is that uh, there's there was a lot of 
myths around uh, when the song was written. There's a, a lot of people that have said it was written in January of 1895 and uh, given lots of good reasons for that. Well, uh, I think I've just knocked them on the head, uh, but that's really for you to decide. Uh, all I've really done in the book is accumulate um, buckets of evidence. Uh, I've treated the reader with respect that I would treat a jury with um, the same respect, and that is to uh, uh, you provide the evidence to them and you try to uh, argue for a, a case. Uh, they can accept it, they can reject it. I've, um, so far we're into March. I've only one, uh, run uh, one trial, criminal trial this year, and uh, uh, the jury came back with uh, uh, one word instead of two, which means that uh, there's not a great forensic victory there for me. But um, uh, so I've started this year with uh, with a guilty verdict. But that um, uh, that's what happens when uh, juries uh, decide on the evidence. Well, this book does not much more than, in my opinion, uh, provide the evidence. Uh, and uh, you, the jury, um, hopefully will decide for yourself as to what you think uh, the origins of Walsing Matilda really were. Uh, if you've got some connection to any of the characters within the book, uh, and there's about 15 characters, the book starts with a cast of characters. Uh, if you happen to have a connection, if you know of them or you're related to any of them, uh, you'll um, have the opportunity to uh, provide your own input, uh, your contribution with um, the website that my son created. I'm not that uh, uh, capable of creating websites myself, but it's called walsingmatildahistory.com.au and it will enable you to um, add to your add your perspective uh, and contribution to uh, the story of Walsing Matilda. Uh, so that um, might foreshadow the next edition or the next volume or whatever, we'll see. Uh, but um, uh, at this stage, what I'd like, there's two little bits left, I'm not quite sure of the time, but the two little bits left of the um, uh, today's launch, and that is, um, first of all, I'm happy to invite uh, questions from the floor, anyone at all. Uh, and uh, after that, I think it might be appropriate to finish off with uh, the version of Walsing Matilda, which uh, you'll see on the pages that I've left on your uh, seats. If anyone hasn't got one, uh, there are some more up here. So, uh, so feel free to come perhaps up to the corner here and grab one. Uh, you can take them away. You don't have to leave them. Who said you get nothing nothing for nothing nowadays? This is something for nothing. Uh, you're welcome to take it away. What it is is the original um, words written by Banjo Patterson. They're typed out on the back. Uh, on the front is the Christina's arrangement of Walsy Matilda taken from the National Library of Australia's uh, um, collection. And I might just say uh, that what you have in your hand as far as Christina McPherson's arrangement is concerned, uh, has two things that really mark it as remarkable and, and I think a wonderful document uh, to have in your hands. The first thing is that there are, for those musicians amongst us, uh, there are two um, uh, aspects of this uh, 
or two bars of the song that's been written. Uh, it's been written in 4-4 time and there are two bars that have five, five um, notes to the, to the bar. In other words, they're incorrect musically. Now, what that means is that uh, Christina McPherson was not the greatest musician as far as writing music is concerned, putting it to paper, uh, but the lovely thing about it is that it shows that the human quality of it uh, and it shows that it, uh, it is the original uh, notes that she has put to paper uh, unadulterated by someone crossing out the extra note uh, so don't try to actually play it. You probably won't be able to. You, you'll probably be able to play most of it, but not all of it, from, the, from that um, iteration of it. Uh, and the second thing, and the last thing I want to say about this marvellous document, is that uh, in the National Library of Australia, from whence it came, uh, there is, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to go if you uh, ever have time in Canberra. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it, there are only two other places that are, are, are much more fun, and that's the High Court of Australia, which is the greatest show on earth, uh, and Parliament, is co of course. They're, they're, you can get lots of amusement at both of those places. Uh, I've not appeared in, in the High Court. Uh, but um, uh, the other thing about this song that makes it so valuable is that within the confines of the National Library of Australia, they have what's called the vault. And in the vault are the most valuable items of Australian history. In it, you will find Cap oh, Whitefella Australian history, I should say. You'll find Captain Cook's diaries. You'll find uh, botany uh, descriptions and pictures by the botanists uh, that were on Captain Cook's boat, who were especially there to... Uh, uh, I think it was Gould. Banks. Banks. Banks, Banks that's right. Uh, you, you'll find the, own, the most important things uh, from Australia's Whitefella history in the vault. And in amongst those things, you'll find this document, the original of it. You've got photocopies, of course, but the original of it is in the vault. And that's the respect that, that the National Library of Australia pays to this song and to this story, and I commend it to you. So... Uh, the last two things I'd like to do for this launch is, first of all, invite any questions. And lastly, we'll have a go at singing the song in the style that it was written. So we'll, uh, Felix and I will perhaps um, uh, kick it off by singing uh, the first verse uh, and the first chorus. And then you'll get an idea of the sort of the rhythm of it. And uh, it, it's quite slow. It's, it's a romantic uh, serenade, so it's to be sung in a sort of a romantic way uh, and with, a, with a, a tune that is quite familiar but not exactly the same as the one that you might have heard before. So can I invite any questions from the floor? Yeah. Keep your voice up and perhaps so that people can hear. Um, well, 
Well, I'll start at page four and I'll finish at page 365. Uh, that's a very hard question to, to answer in a nutshell. I'm, I'm sorry, did we all hear the question? The, no, so, uh, so, sorry, your name is? Jeff. Jeff has went and saw the play and he's read Dennis's book and he's now asking, where is it different? Yeah, well, is that fair to say? What's, what's been added? Uh, look, I think uh, my... Uh, before I was published, if I could answer it this way, it's a bit oblique and it's not exactly on point, but before I was, uh, I met the publisher, Dan Kelly, in Brisbane uh, a year ago, uh, he, he asked me exactly the same question. Uh, well, what do you add to the story? You, you reckon you've got a book about Walsing Matilda. What, what do you add? Well, I uh, thought that's a perfectly sensible question for a publisher to ask and a, and a fair one because if the answer is zero, well, he's not going to make a cent out of it and why would he bother publishing you? And, I, and that seems to me fair enough. Um, Pamela, my wife, and I were um, uh, in Winton and uh, we were travelling around there. One of the things that Pamela has done, my wife is a mosaic artist and, uh, and painter, and as you walked into the door today, you would have seen uh, her work, which is a collaboration between her and myself. She's done uh, works on the background of Walsing Matilda, and all of those uh, paintings are based on the, on the song, and the uh, mosaics are based also on the song. In the mosaics, you'll see some detritus, uh, that is, some stuff that's been picked up, rubbish, like uh, old uh, nails and old bits of um, uh, bits of metal. Uh, it's been they've they've come from Dagworth Station, and uh, Pamela has, um, uh, I think, possibly committed theft. Uh, maximum penalties, I think, ten years. Uh, and I did promise that if anyone um, uh, told on her, that I would be visiting her in jail. And it's although I don't think I am able to appear for her because that's a conflict of interest and, uh, and I don't think anyone would listen to me uh, at trying to build her, up her character. But nevertheless, there's, a, uh, there's an exhibition which is just next door here uh, based on the book uh, uh, by Pamela and the other lovely thing about it is that I regard it as a, a collaboration between her and myself. Um, it's our third collaboration. Our first is our daughter. She's 28. Our second was our son. He's 26. Uh, this is the only one that's a creative um, one as far as the arts are concerned. Uh, and um, so I invite you to go and have a look at that. To answer your question as to what is new, I um, we were driving around uh, and walking around Dagworth Station, then driving back to uh, Brisbane, uh, sorry, back to Longreach to fly to Brisbane. Uh, and um, in the car, uh, I said, look, can you make these notes um, uh, in preparation? And I, we worked out 24 uh, new issues that I think I had, to, had found, uh, which had not been the subject of any uh, publication before. One of them Felix referred to, and that is that uh, Samuel Hofmeister uh, whether or not he was the swagman, and uh, who knows the answer to that, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he, uh, he is part of that debate, uh, his, uh, within four months of, the, uh, of his death in, uh, on the 2nd of September 1894, within four months of that date, uh, his, he was decapitated. 
uh, his skull was um, uh, removed from Dagworth, for, sorry, from Kainuna Station where he was buried, uh, and it was taken to the uh, embryonic um, police museum in uh, Brisbane. The police museum was created in uh, December of 1893 with the purpose of teaching. It wasn't a public museum, it was a teaching museum to teach young detectives how to distinguish between murder and suicide and other sorts of crimes. And in that museum, uh, the, uh, uh, the Commissioner of Police sent a memo around to every police station in Queensland uh, and New South Wales indeed, uh, asking for artefacts for that teaching purpose. Uh, now, the um, a fellow called Dylan, who was the uh, council assist, or the police officer assisting the coroner in Hofmeister's death, and the inquest is uh, on the table outside as well. If you want to have a look at that, the handwritten inquest, uh, the um, uh, the police officer remembered about this memorandum and decided that uh, this skull, which was supposed to be uh, the result of uh, a suicide, and that was what the finding was by the coroner at the time, uh, that skull had to go into the museum. And it was one of the first uh, objects uh, that went into the museum. Uh, it was definitely there because it was reported by the newspapers in April of 1896. It was reported once again uh, a few months later. And then the next report uh, was in of of the same museum was in um, the 1930s with a photograph of a table with a whole lot of skulls on it and other memorabilia and other other objects, but none of them were labelled. So I don't know the names of those skulls. Uh, if uh, and my contact, and I, I want to thank um, uh, Lisa Jones, who's the curator of the museum. The Police Museum, she's been marvellous from day one. I, I asked her, well, look, can you find me the skull? I'd like to get it forensically examined by some people in the police uh, service nowadays to see if um, it, um, it really can be established that it was uh, suicide rather than uh, some human intervention, which might mean uh, that he was uh, murdered rather than uh, shot himself in the mouth. Um, I've not been able to find the skull. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I'd love to find the skull and have it forensically examined. But um, uh, what have I added to the story? Uh, at least the quest for Hofmeister's skull, plus, I reckon, about 23 other things, all of which are in the book. And thank you for congratulating me on the book without having read it. That's a lovely thing to do. Um, I will um, be happy to sign copies of the book, obviously, for anyone that wishes to purchase them. And uh, just for uh, two little things to, as added value, uh, firstly is that the book costs $32.99. I've got a pile of one-cent pieces for anyone that wants to pay $33 for it, or even if you don't, um, I'd like you to take a one-cent piece away because it's uh, it's not valuable currency anymore. And although it did cost me a fair bit on eBay, I must say, to get the damn things. And I'd, 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 love, I'd love you to have one of them uh, as a little token of my appreciation that you've come along to listen to me. Uh, you know, to be given one cent by a criminal barrister isn't a bad way to finish the day, is it, really? Um, and, uh, and finally, if, um, if you're not satisfied with one signature in, in the book, uh, Pamela, who's um, standing at the back there somewhere, is Pamela here somewhere? Oh, she's in. She's in. Probably trying to 
um, talk to people about her works. She will also sign the, the book and there she is. So a big hand for Pamela, please. She'll, she'll not only, she tells me, promises me, she'll not only sign, sign the uh, book as well, but she'll do a little drawing on it and I can't draw. So that's the other bonus, a little drawing of her YOLO man, you only live once man, who uh, stars in the um, uh, Walsing Matilda uh, array of uh, paintings and mosaics out, outside. Um, any other questions at this stage? You'll, you'll understand from that answer that I'm not really going to talk about what's in the book because you won't buy the bloody thing. So, But I'm, I'm very happy to, to um, uh, field any questions that you might have. Yep. Scream it out. Um, well, that uh, leading a water bag, the water bag is what a, uh, a swagman would carry, a, a canvas bag, and uh, he'd carry it because if you're walking around Queensland in the heat, uh, you need, you need uh, sustenance and you also need water. Uh, so you'd be carrying the water bag and it would actually be, a, be full of water and it would be uh, in front of you. So you'd, be, you'd have the swag on your back and the water bag on your front. So you're leading the water bag as you're leading to, as you're walking around. Walsing Matilda translates as carrying the swag. Mm. So the water bag is something that you also carry and you, you lead it as you walk around. You might have it on your back or on your front, but is that pretty close? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, that's, so I've got some support. That, this is called, uh, in the criminal law, this is called corroborative evidence. Uh, and it's pretty persuasive. It's pretty persuasive. Yes? Um, the question was, is any of, of Banjo's descendants amongst us? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, his daughter, his, there is a granddaughter that lives in Orange who's in her 80s. Uh, she was, uh, who I haven't managed to speak to. And if there is a deficiency in this book, I'll make a confession. Criminal barristers don't usually confess to anything, but one confession is that I haven't really uh, obtained much in the way of personal memories or historical um, material from the Patterson side of things. Uh, real, and the reason for that, my excuse, is that uh, Banjo Patterson is a very well known character in Australian history. A lot's been written on him. Uh, there's been marvellous uh, um, biographies written. As recently as 2018, there was a book called Banjo. Um, it didn't really add anything, if I might say, to the seminal work by a fellow called uh, Colin Roderick, uh, a historian who wrote a magnificent uh, biography of Banjo Patterson in 1993. Uh, and uh, uh, that particular work is called uh, Banjo Patterson, Poet by Accident. So that's another reason why my book is uh, subtitled Australia's Accidental Anthem. And it's a nod to um, Roderick's uh, Poet by Accident. Uh, I've, pinched, I've pinched the word, but it's a nod to that as well. It's got various meanings, uh, but um, uh, short answer to your question, no, I, I haven't really done a lot of research on the Patterson side of things because I've assumed that it's been done. 
it, it's they haven't answered all the questions, and I think there are some that emerge from the book that I would love to know the answers to. Um, one of those is I would love to get my hands on Banjo Patterson was a solicitor in Sydney. I'd like to get my hands on his diary. Uh, solicitors always keep diaries. Lawyers love bits of paper and they love writing down dates and things. Uh, and I'd like to get his diary from that time. Uh, if it's not in the hands of Patterson's estate or his descendants, it might be in the hands of the descendants of his partner. And his partner was a fellow called uh, William Street, John William Street. Uh, and that name, uh, are there any lawyers amongst the audience? It's a couple. All right, well, th that name uh, might resonate uh, with you because uh, Banjo's partner, Mr Street, of 1890, between 1888 and 1899, when the partnership dissolved, uh, that partner, uh, Mr Street, had a, uh, I think it was a son, uh, and that's, or nephew, but his name was Street. Uh, he became the Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal of New South Wales in the 1920s. Uh, now, that um, Mr Justice Street had a son uh, who became the Chief Justice of the Court of Criminal Appeal of New South Wales in the 1950s, I think. And that particular person had a son who became the, wait for it, Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal of New South Wales in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, so there is a, a long history of judicial uh, uh, eminence uh, and uh, that's the connection that Banjo Patterson had with the uh, legal aristocracy of um, uh, New South Wales, of the Sydney aristocracy back in uh, the 1890s. Might be time to sing the song. No, I've got five minutes. Well, that's about as long as it'll take to sing that's the another, song. Another, there another question? question? Yeah. Uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, good, good, thanks. You did? Well, yes, and the reason for that is that the last chapter of the book uh, includes uh, a subtitle which is The Incomplete History of Walsing Matilda. And uh, in that, um, uh, I invite uh, those to, uh, who are related to the song to um, uh, add their own twists and turns to it, information, and I think it will... Uh, mine information from various sources that have yet to be uh, uh, yet to uh, be in the public domain, all sorts of places. Uh, and if there are seven hundred over seven hundred and thirty versions of Walsy Matilda in the National Film and Sound Archive now, how many are there going to be in the future? I ask that rhetorical question because styles of music change. I'm sure there's a rap version. I know that there's uh, I think Mill's sisters, uh, who are Aboriginal women, sing a, uh, a, a version in, I don't know the name, the actual language, but it's in an Aboriginal uh, language. Uh, it's very funny and funny, it sounds funny to me. Uh, it's, a, it's on YouTube, so if you want to YouTube Mill's Walsing Matilda, you'll hear it yourself. Uh, it's a lot of fun and I think um, uh, if this book gets a bit of traction... Uh, then um, you, you might get lots more versions and lots more con contribution to the uh, the history of Walsing Matilda, which I think is yet to be finalised and well and truly uh, needs uh, a lot of questions answered. 
Okay, so we now finish off with a song and uh, the, the version that we're going to sing together as best we can, uh, so you can grab your, your sheets if you haven't got any and if you look over someone's shoulder um, and grab a copy before you go. I've got plenty, plenty more here. Felix, are we going to give it a, just yeah. just the first uh, the first um, verse and the and the uh, uh, and the chorus and on the count of three one two three oh, oh there, there once was, was a swagman camped in the billabong under the shade of a coolabar tree and he sang as he looked. At the old Billy boiling, who come a waltzing Matilda with me? Who come a waltzing Matilda, my darling? Who come a waltzing Matilda with me? Waltzing Matilda and leading a water bag. Who come a waltzing Matilda with me? So that's the sort of speed. Don't have to rush it through. And keep in mind that, and I've highlighted the uh, the hool and yule, that this is a question and answer. And just half close your eyes and in your imagination, take yourself back to 1895, August. You're sitting under the, uh, the veranda at Dagworth Station and Banjo's looking at this very attractive, handsome woman who's playing this wonderful Scottish tune on an auto-harp and he pens this. Does he pen it just for his own amusement or is it a love serenade? I think it's the latter. So sing it like a love serenade, a question and answer. On the count of three, from the start to the end, one, two, three... Oh, there once was a swagman camped in the billabong under the shade of a coolabar tree. And he sang as he looked at the old Billy boiling. Who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me? Who'll come a waltzing Matilda, my darling? Who come waltzing Matilda with me? Waltzing Matilda, leading a water bag. Who come waltzing Matilda with me? Down came a jumbuck to drink at the water hole. Up jumped the swagman, grabbed him in glee. And he sang as he put him away in his tucker bag. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. You'll come a waltzing Matilda, my darling. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda and leading a water bag. You come a waltzing Matilda with me. Well, down came the squatter, a riding on his thoroughbred. Down came policeman, one, two, three. Whose is that jumbuck you've got in your tucker bag? 
You'll come along sing, sing Matilda with me. You'll come along sing Matilda, my darling. You'll come along sing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda and leading a water bag. You'll come along sing Matilda with me. But the swagman he up. And he jumped in the water hole, drowning himself by the cool of our tree. And his ghost can be heard as it sings in the billabong. Who'll come a waltzing, Matilda, with me? Who'll come a waltzing, Matilda, my darling? Who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me? Waltzing Matilda and leading a water bag. Who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me? And it's lovely to finish on that question, isn't it? Yep. I'll be signing books uh, at the back and Pamela will draw her little iconic YOLO man. So you only live once. Enjoy the festival. It's a fabulous one.